0: You're listening to a podcast from the Swedish House of Finance, Sweden's National Research Center for Financial Economics. This podcast is for everyone with a curiosity for finance and an interest in academic research. To learn more about the Swedish House of Finance, visit houseoffinance.se.
1: Olga Abizhaeva, and uh, I'm an assistant professor at the Stockholm School of Economics. You're listening to the second episode of the Swedish House of Finance podcast series. Now we are sitting at the Swedish House of Finance, and I have two guests today. Um, it's a professor, Pete Kyle, from the University of Maryland. Hi, Pete.
2: Hi, Olga. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: And. Uh, <laughs> My second guest is Anna Bezhaeva from the New Economic School in Moscow. Glad to be here. So 10 years ago there was a financial crisis and uh, among other things it showed us that we don't understand many things about financial markets. Around the same time you have started to work on the new theory uh, that you call market microstructure invariance. It is a very ambitious uh, research agenda, but. It seems that uh, there are still only a few people uh, who understand what it is about. So could you tell me and explain me uh, a little bit more about the invariance?
2: We think that financial markets can be viewed as games played by many players at the same time. In these uh, games, traders, typically institutional investors, make decisions to buy or sell large quantities of assets, maybe 10,000 shares of stock worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. We call these decisions bets. So we make a big distinction between calendar time and business time. Business time is measured by the rate at which institutional investors place bets. Calendar time is measured the way it's measured according to a clock on the wall. So a typical stock might have 100 bets per day. Apple might have 1,000 bets per day. In an even bigger market, like the dollar, euro, foreign exchange market, or 10-year Treasury bond futures markets, or maybe the biggest market of all, the S&P 500 E-mini futures market, they have many thousands of bets per day, maybe more than 10,000 bets per day. In a very liquid stock market, the game is played very quickly. The bets are large, and bets may not last for very long periods of time. On the other hand, in a very small, illiquid stock that doesn't get much market attention, the game is played very slowly, Uh, the bets are smaller and the bets last for a long time. We think these games for different stocks are essentially the same. The rules are the same, and the amount of money involved is the same if you adjust the timescales with which they're played uh, to make the timescales equivalent.
0: So it's a little bit like uh, the game of chess. Um, There are fast chess and uh, slow chess. So if you think about uh, how people trade uh, in some liquid securities, it's like they play fast chess. The, the business time runs very fast. At the same time, uh, when uh, people trade some illiquid securities like corporate bonds, it's like they play slow chess. The business time runs very slowly. Ultimately, the games are the same. It's the same trading game that people are, tra- uh, are playing, but they look differently in calendar time because um, in calendar time, um, games play out uh, at
1: different speeds. What exactly does it mean that the games are the same?
2: We think uh, the, the games are the same in, in the sense that there is an invariance relationship that they all satisfy. Um, one invariance relationship is the amount of risk that is transferred by a bet is the same in all markets on average if you measure the risk that it transferred as the change in the dollar mark-to-market value of the position between the arrival of one bet and the arrival of the next bet. In a very liquid market, bets are very large when measured in dollar size, um, but the time interval between the arrival of the bets is very small. So that that large dollar value that, that you bet changes in price by about the same amount as a smaller dollar value would change over a longer period of time in a less liquid market. So less liquid markets uh, are markets in which time is essentially business time is passing more slowly when measured in calendar time.
0: Essentially, when calendar time is converted to business time and percentage risks are converted into dollar risks, you get uh, very similar trading games that are described by the same set of formulas, the same set of rules. But then if you go back to calendar time, to which we are all accustomed to, Invariance would imply um, uh, different uh, interesting predictions and formulas about uh, various parameters uh, such as um, average bed size, number of beds, transaction costs of all types, uh, bid-ask spread, resiliency. All these parameters, all these variables will be nonlinear functions of um, price, volume and volatility that we can easily observe or calculate. What is nice about our, our, our framework is that it gives uh, not only it, it gives quantitative predictions, not, not uh, only qualitative predictions.
2: And not only does it give quantitative predictions but it gives quantitative predictions uh, based on calibration of a very small handful of parameters. In transactions cost modeling for example, it's, it's uh, frequently the case that a researcher might estimate a different transactions cost model for every stock and do this for thousands of stocks. Uh, What we propose instead is calibrating a, a small handful of constants that are the same for all stocks and therefore we get exactly the same model applied to all these thousands of stocks which have different volumes and volatilities and therefore different estimates for trading costs.
0: Yes, our research suggests a specific quantitative formula for transaction costs and it's a formula that uh, depends on uh, some characteristics of the market in which uh, orders are executed. Uh, and these characteristics would be trading volume, returns, volatility, and this formula of transaction costs will also depend on the size of orders executed and how
1: quickly they are executed. What is the execution horizon? So it sounds you have a very uh, that you have a very generic uh, way to describe transaction costs and uh, liquidity in the. Um, in the various markets. So do you have some simple formula for that?
2: It turns out that we do have a simple formula. You start by taking the ratio of dollar volume in the market to returns variance. You, add, you multiply by one scaling parameter that's measured in dollars, and then you take the cube root. Um, after you've taken the cube root, you have a number that essentially measures liquidity. The reciprocal of that number, the the inverse, measures trading costs, and it turns out that we think it exactly measures trading costs. If trading costs are 40 basis points on average in that market, you'll get a number like 0.0040, which is 40 basis points.
0: We call this liquidity index L. This is our main uh,
1: liquidity index. So, Pete, uh, you talked about transaction costs and, in particular, market impact costs. So uh, does Invariance have something to say about your paper that you wrote in, in 1985?
2: Well, I wrote a paper in 1985 uh, that has a parameter in it that, we, uh, that I call lambda at the time. Lambda measures market impact. And that lambda parameter in, in, in that paper uh, was, was something that depended on the private information that informed traders were trading on, the ratio of that to the uh, standard deviation of orders coming in uh, that measures the kind of standard deviation of the order flow. And in that paper, lambda is something that many people would view to be of empirical interest because many mm-hmm. people want to measure what how large market impact is in a market. Uh, what the invariance uh, relationships that we've derived uh, allow us to do is actually measure how much lambda is going to be different for one stock than for another when the assets differ dramatically in their level of trading activity.
0: So invariance does not uh, contradict uh, existing models like l uh, five uh, or other models, but it sort of uh, helps to make um, predictions of those models uh, practical and operational. If you think about um, this famous paper that Pete wrote uh, back Uh, in uh, 1985. One of the predictions is uh, a prediction about lambda, Kyles' Lambda that um, price impact uh, depends on the ratio of uh, how much of asymmetric information is in the market and uh, what is the amount of hedging in in the market. It's a very nice um, model that conveys a lot of intuition but ultimately the the prediction it gives it's very hard to use for people mm-hmm. in practice, because uh, who knows how much of uh, information asymmetry is there in the market uh, of um, Apple or um, corporate bond, uh, some corporate bonds. We don't know, so we cannot uh, we cannot measure these quantities. Invariance actually generates uh, predictions uh, that would be. Uh, very easy to implement because all of the variables are expressed in terms of other variables that would be easier to measure um,
1: like price volume and volatility so basically if uh, if i know your scaling laws um i basically would uh, wouldn't really need uh, to know some uh, unobservable measures of uh, adverse selection but i can just uh, use something that i see like dollar volume and volatility, and uh, it would give me uh, some estimates of transaction costs.
2: Right, it's hard to tell how much private information traders have, because you don't. their information is private by definition. It's also hard to tell how much uh, hedging is exactly going on, because you don't observe the size of the hedging bets. But you do observe volume, and you do observe volatility. And our theory says that if you observe volume and volatility, you can convert that into a measure of price impact, into a measure of the estimate of the sizes of the bets, into an estimate of the number of bets per day, and a variety of other uh, market characteristics that are quite difficult to d- observe directly.
0: Another thing that differentiates our research from uh, what people tried previously is that uh, in many, many, many market market structure models would generate predictions about liquidity. But uh, the problem is that these predictions are sort of difficult to use in practice. What we do, we uh, generate predictions that are operational, meaning that uh, we have a lot of different formulas for different variables as functions of um, other variables that we can easily observe. As I said as before, price, uh, volume, volatility. So this is a little bit... Uh, similar to what people did in physics. So more than uh, 100 years ago, Einstein and other physicists uh, have been thinking about how to measure the size of molecules and their number in a given volume of a substance. Of course, molecules are far too small to be seen with the naked eye or to be measured, but scientists have figured out how to infer this uh, small-scale microscopic properties of substance uh, from large-scale, easily absorbable quantities such as mass uh, and temperature of the substance. In a way, uh, we do something similar. Invariance also tells us how to infer microscopic properties of financial markets from macroscopic and easily measurable parameters.
2: So, for example, a macroscopic property that's easily measured is dollar volume per day. The stock might have a dollar volume of 40 million dollars a day. The stock index futures market might have a volume of $200 billion a day. These volumes vary dramatically across different markets. And volatility is something that we can uh, measure by uh, looking at price changes over short periods of time and uh, averaging up uh, over a uh, large number of short periods of time. Um, when you go take the next step of trying to understand the microscopic quantities, The microscopic quantities might be the average trade size in the market or the average bet size that an institutional investor has in mind. These bets are very difficult to infer from public information. They're they're, they're invisible to an economist in the same way that the size of a molecule might be uh, invisible uh, to a physicist. Similarly, price impact costs are notoriously hard to measure. They're almost invisible unless you have a huge amount of data and uh, uh, very powerful statistical tools. So what we are able to do is infer what the trade size uh, is and infer what the transaction costs are from volume and volatility data, which is macroscopic data about a particular market that we can easily um, observe.
1: Uh, Whether the theory is correct or not uh, is being judged based on the empirical tests. So, uh, is your theory supported by the data?
2: Well, let me give you some examples of empirical tests that we've done. We've looked at portfolio transitions, which are a particular type of institutional equity trade. And we found that the exponent of one-third that we were looking for, we were predicting from our theories, uh, actually can be pretty accurately calibrated to be approximately one-third with a a very small error. we also, sizes, uh, the, uh, was, was uh, we also looked at the sizes of the – and this one-third was an estimate for trading costs. We also looked at the sizes of the portfolio transition trades that are sizes of institutional trades. And we found, again, that this exponent of uh, one-third uh, shows up uh, pretty closely. We got a, an estimate, I think, that could be called uh, something closer to 0.3, but it's, it's still very close to one-third. Um, so in the portfolio transitions data, we get good support for it. Uh, we've looked at data on, on K- Korean stocks, and we've looked at the rate at which people change their mind. We call it switching points. They change their mind by switching from buying to selling. And we predict that, uh, that, that those changes should occur uh, as a function of the product of dollar volume and volatility with an exponent of two-thirds, and we find that the exponent is about 0.67, almost exactly two-thirds.
0: We tested our predictions also uh, concerning um, the number of news articles published about different uh, firms, because uh, information flow has to be synchronized uh, with the speed with which trading occurs, and if so, then invariance can be uh, used to make uh, predictions about the number of news articles. We looked at the data from Thomson Reuters, and uh, we We saw that uh, the number of news articles published per month about uh, individual securities, about individual firms is actually proportional to dollar volume and volatility in the power of 0.68, and invariance uh, predicts the power of two-thirds, so quite close.
1: This is pretty incredible. I actually think that there are not that many economic theories that would give such precise uh, predictions that are so well supported by the data. So you said that your theory, the invariance theory, would apply to liquid stocks such as Apple and illiquid securities such as corporate bonds. Would it apply to the bitcoins? Oh yes, we, we believe invariance is likely to
0: apply uh... In different markets in different countries in different time periods actually we have tested our theory in u.s markets for stocks and index futures we tested uh, our predictions uh, using data on stocks um, in russia and south korea uh, but we didn't test our theory on bitcoins yet maybe somebody
1: else else will do it so it's an
0: interesting an interesting research question
1: so, so far, uh, we have been mostly discussing the trading liquidity, which of course uh, institutional asset managers care about, but what about the funding liquidity, have you thought about this?
2: Well, ec- economists often make a distinction between trading liquidity and funding liquidity, and they act as if trading liquidity and funding liquidity are two different things. What we think is that trading liquidity and funding liquidity are two sides of the same coin and they simple, uh, essentially have the same measure, which is related to our L measure. For example, many people would say that repo haircuts, that is uh, margins or uh, haircuts on speculative positions or financing positions, should be proportional to the standard deviation of returns. But we think it should be proportional to the reciprocal of this L measure. And the intuition for this is to think about what happens if there is a default in the repo market, which was something people were worrying about during the financial crisis and got us thinking about this. And the answer is that if there was a default, a lender would be stuck with illiquid collateral. And the risks of that illiquid collateral depend not simply on the standard deviation of returns over let's say one week, but even more on a longer, the length of the horizon over which that collateral would have to be liquidated. When you take into account that illiquid collateral is going to be liquidated over a very long time horizon. The correct measure for an appropriate haircut is not standard deviation, but rather 1 over L, the reciprocal of our liquidity measure.
0: Or standard deviation of uh, returns in business time, not calendar time.
2: Correct. Standard deviation of returns in business time is related to liquidity, 1 over L. And that summarizes everything.
1: It seems that invariances are very powerful into predicting the transaction cost formulas, which can be used by institutional asset manager- managers. But do you have anything to say about the financial stability?
2: Well, we have a paper on stock market crashes. The traditional economist's way of thinking about stock market crashes is that they must be caused by some kind of uh, unusual information event that uh, can has cataclysmic information. Uh, in it and that results in a substantial decline in prices. Yet, when we look at stock market crashes, it's difficult to find such information events. So we have written a paper that looks at five stock market crashes and asks whether these crashes can be explained not by information events, events, but rather by selling pressure or very large, gigantic bets that happen to arrive in the market when these crashes occur. If you look at the 1929 crash, for example, There were huge liquidations of margin accounts that were forced sales by thousands of retail traders all across the United States. And we think that it was this selling pressure that that caused the crash of 1929. Uh, We tried to calibrate it. Our model doesn't work perfectly, but it predicts much bigger price declines than the traditional thinking would imply. We, We also took a look at the 1987 stock market crash and found that the quantities of portfolio insurance selling actually do explain the size of that crash. And our explanation is based on extrapolating our model of volume and volatility from individual stocks to the market as a whole. Uh, You might ask, well, what would have happened if you had used your model in some more recent crashes? Uh, There was an interesting event that occurred in January of 2008 when rogue trader Jerome Curviel's uh, $50 billion position at Societe Generale was liquidated over three days. Our model predicts that that should have caused stock markets in both Europe and perhaps the United States as well to decline by 10 percentage points. And guess what happened? The stock market went down by about 10 percentage point points over that uh, three-day period.
0: Market crashes continue to accue. Uh, a few years ago, there was uh, a stock market, uh, stock market crash in China. And we believe that it has been caused also by liquidation of these uh, margin uh, positions in, in China.
2: And if you look at what happened the week before Christmas last year, the United States stock market declined by about 10% in one week. Uh, if you look at redemptions from mutual funds, uh, the redemptions were tens of billions of dollars. The number that sticks in my mind is 80 billion. And our model would predict... That a giant $80 billion bet executed at a reasonable pace, which might correspond to three or four or five days, would drive the stock market down by about 10%. So it's reasonable to conclude that that decline the week before Christmas was the result of traders liquidating uh, positions in m- mutual funds.
0: Essentially, people have to be uh, very careful when liquidating or selling large positions, especially when they're doing this uh, very quickly, very rapidly. And our invariance formulas uh, are very scientific and uh, quantitative, they can show quite precisely what is the price impact, price drop to expect if somebody liquidates large positions uh, so fast.
1: Well, I hope that the traders uh, would eventually learn about the invariance and would realize the consequences of this rough uh, trading and like dumping the huge quantities in the market. If I would like to learn some more about the invariants, uh, where do I start?
0: You can Google, you can look at our websites um, and uh, at SSRN, where researchers usually post their working papers.
2: And I would suggest Googling the last name of my co-author, Obezaeva, O-B-I-Z-H-A-E-V-A. It's a reasonably unique name, and if you go to Google Scholar, That'll tell you a lot about invariance.
1: Pete, Anna, thank you very much for this very interesting conversation and uh, for joining us today. Thank you very much for inviting us.
2: We thoroughly enjoyed talking about invariance.
1: And for our listeners who would like to learn more about Pete's and Anna's research, including seminar videos and other podcasts, visit houseoffinance.se. And if you would like to suggest future topics or guests, please email us at podcast at houseoffinance.se. This is Olga signing off. We look forward to the next time.